90 Miles from Needles is brought to you by generous support from people just like you. You can join our ranks by going to 90milesfromneedles.com slash donate. For 90 Miles from Needles, the Desert Protection Podcast, with your hosts, Chris Clark and Alicia Pike. Hey, welcome to 90 Miles from Needles, the Desert Protection Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Alicia. And we have the great pleasure today of having as a guest in our studio the one and only Obi Kaufman, who has a series of California atlases out, the most recent one, which is out in late October, is entitled The Deserts of California, which is just absolutely a delightful book. It's a visual pleasure. It's full of really cool information, stuff I didn't know is in there. I'm just really glad that you were available to talk to us this morning, Obi. Oh, are you kidding? The pleasure is all mine. I'm such a fan of this podcast. Sitting here with you two is a real dream. Thank you for joining us. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Give us a little background on the Atlas series. How did it come about? Yeah, the, the... The name of the book is The Deserts of California, right? I pluralized the deserts so I can go over these four deserts that we have here covering about 25% of our state, right? The Great Basin to the north and the east. And we've got where we're sitting now, and of course, in the Mojave or the high desert. And then we got the Sonoran and the Colorado when Colorado is just really the Sonoran desert inside of California. So we've got four deserts. And so it's the deserts of California, a California field atlas. And I invented the genre the field atlas, field atlases don't exist, right? And I wanted it to be something between a field guide, but I'm not really concerned with the what of things. If you want a field guide, go get a field guide to discuss, to find, I don't know, the birds of Joshua Tree National Park or whatever you want. But it's also not a road atlas. I'm not really concerned about the where of things either, which is funny for a thing calling itself an atlas. But what I'm really interested in is the how of things. Like, how do these big ecological systems interact to, to form this living network of biodiversity, really a celebration of biodiversity would be the mission, vision, and values, if you will, of this latest volume. But really, it's at the thrust of all of my work on this political entity called California, mm-hmm. right? So I've got the Deserts of California is the third in a trilogy of sorts called the California Lands Trilogy, as I call it. The first was the forests of California, again, pluralizing it. The second was the coasts of California, which is funny to think of as a pluralized thing. It's so funny, in fact, that when I bought the the website, thecoastsofcalifornia.com, it cost me like 25 cents. Like nobody thought to pluralize the coast, but you know, the coasts of Mendocino, much ecologically different in character than like the coast of San Diego. It's like a completely different thing, you know? So breaking that up describing patterns in California ecology that have been, continue to be, and will always be, regardless of the urban veneer that we've so effectively erected over the past couple hundred years, right? So that's the elevator pitch, if you will, about what I do. What a cool amalgamation of concepts to Mm. create an educational compendium of great size it sounds like i'm looking forward to digging in thank you thank you alicia yeah it's really it's a particular attitude right because my original vocation is a painter 
my father was a scientist. Dr. Kaufman's son was going to be a mathematician. So like after school and high school, all, oh, it all it was calculus homework for me. And so systems thinking, and like a, lo and behold, he makes an artist. So this idea of consilience, that's what E.O. Wilson called it in his book, about the unity of human knowledge between these great schools of human thought, right? The physical sciences and, and the humanities, really. It, it's almost like the overlap is like a a margin effect, right? Like the ecotone where you have, you think of where the riparian environment meets the desert environment. You're going to get a lot more, you're going to get a lot more biodiversity at that margin, right? Where transition zones, exactly. we love transition well, zones Transi around here. Those liminal spaces. That's yeah. right. That's right. Where more niche opportunities for resources. Mm -hmm. So there's a metaphor at work there too, about, about the nature of knowledge, of understanding. I don't want to make textbooks, right? I'm not going to leave you alone with the information. This is this, and this is this, and this right. is this. I'm really aiming to invite you on you know, this journey of discovery that I'm on to try and figure this stuff out because it is not simple. It is. And in fact, I, I love to revel in the complexity. The complexity is where it's at, man. That's where the truth is. When, you, when things get too simple, too generalized, it, 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 we miss so much. And so celebrating that complexity, which seems to be hand in hand with diversity, that's where you, the, the vectors of resiliency come from in a greater understanding of the land and on the land. Okay, well, that wraps it up. <laughs> uh, that's a fantastic answer. As we've mentioned before in conversation, I share some life history with you as at least the part about being the person who lives in Oakland and comes to the desert whenever it's physically possible. How long have you been familiarizing yourself with the deserts in California or elsewhere for that matter? And do you remember your first impression of the deserts? Oh, that, that's such a great question. Yeah. I almost interpret that question as, all right, who are you? <laughs> what the hell do you think you're doing? <laughs> because have written this large 600-page book about the deserts of California as if I know a thing, right? Present uh, your desert credibility, right, Obi. Exactly. Yeah. Let's see your right, credentials. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I hope that this book is not like a tourist guide to the desert. Like, I, I wanted to make this for the desert community. There's oh, 72 maps of the wilderness areas across California, hand-drawn, pan-painted maps. Like, who wants that but locals? Right? Mm -hmm. So I've always been fascinated with the desert's wilderness areas, those roadless, silent spaces. And I spent years and years backpacking. At 50 years old now, I, I don't know how water is heavy, man. You know, backpacking the desert's a thing that, that I did a lot in my youth when I was ready to go after it. And I could put an 85, 90 pound pack. Is, well, it's always a problem. No matter how macho you think you are, 90 pound pack is no joke. Yeah. But these days it's my backpacking these days is like following contour lines, not crossing them too much. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I feel you. Yeah. But then, I, I mean, I lament that this book in particular, I say things like, I could have drawn these maps with a pair of scissors, right? Which is, gets to the vague, arbitrary, property-oriented geometries imposed on the landscape that have nothing to do with ecology. The political boundaries of these land designations are fences of mm -hmm. sorts, if not an actual fence, 
than they are a political fence. Uh, to describe an entity that only exists in the collective mind of Sacramento and Washington, D.C., yep. as far as that goes, there is no, there's, but we need, it's a contrivance that we need, isn't it, in order to keep these spaces undeveloped, roadless. And the boundaries tend to be set by consensus or by who could argue the longest kind of thing. Each of these little arbitrary boundaries, the notches and the bumps and the bulges and the cherry stems, they all have stories behind how they got that way, which is really fascinating to me. I don't get too much into that mm -hmm. in the book. This isn't a history of wilderness right. areas, right? This is this one, one of the fun exercises of this book as I moved through all of these different wilderness areas, say, was uh, to identify and pick out two animals and two plants and different for every single wilderness area in the desert, right? All 72 of them. But like what I want is to give that then as an example, demonstrable evidence for the great biodiversity mm -hmm. in the desert the, to tackle the argument or to tackle the perception, however false of, of the desert being empty when in fact it is full of all of this great speciation locally. And I was able to source all this information on iNaturalist, right? Yeah. Which was super fun. Very 21st century. I can go into this app and find enough data there to make this analysis and and to do that in art in an artistic context. So it's full of some factoids, this book, the survey of wilderness area, but not really the political history. My overall impression just leaving through the deserts of California has been immense gratitude. Because speaking as somebody that used to be a Bay Area environmentalist, the record of Bay Area environmentalists in general dealing with the deserts in California or elsewhere has not been spotless. And there's been a lot of tension in the last 15 years or so about the proper use of the desert landscape. It's often seemed like what one of my colleagues who lives on the east side of the Sierra calls the Sierra Curtain, where stuff that goes on to the east of the high peaks gets ignored or denigrated, or devalued. We've been having to fight the impression that the desert exists as a place where we put stuff we don't want to live next to, and we extract resources willy-nilly. Even if that resource is space. Yep. And, and with the very false assumption that it's empty space. And that is a resource that is economically, there's economic utility there for, for this thing called the desert to exploit to exploit events. We also think of like the surface of the ocean as like a place where we can put our garbage, like just put it under the surface. The desert operates in that sort of like empty thing. If we can't see it, especially as we're driving at 55 miles an hour, whatever it is, like it must not or exist, lives. which is a terribly, which is it, which is a terribly apt criticism of Sacramento's conservation plan mm -hmm. as it dovetails into the carbon zero plan for the state as well. The desert is doing so much heavy lifting for both of those goals. Yep. Okay. Right now, the desert is about, it's only 25% of California's overall geography, but it's almost half of the state's 30 by 30 goals. Okay. It's about 43%. Yep. The state's 30% 30, 30 of California's lands and waters protected for the expressed interest of biodiversity, mm -hmm. conservation and preservation, right? 
30%. Got a lot of criticisms about this program, but I'm not letting great be the enemy of good. It's, it is, it's a start. If it like we do it and it looks like we are going to do it, make this 30% goal by the year 2030, fingers crossed, we need about a 5 million more acres or so. But if we do it and then we say, yay, nature's saved. Like what a colossal failure yeah. that was. Right? Yeah. No, this is a baseline. But also the poor desert here, we've got all of our solar farms, all of our wind farms, all of our geothermal farms. We can make about seven megawatts a day to, to give to the California grid. Okay. The record for California power usage in one day was like 50 megawatts. And that was just a few years ago. It's some summer day when everybody in California had their air conditioners blasting. Right. Now the goal is in seven short years for the desert to be able to generate 20 megawatts. That's almost three times more. That's over 250,000 acres of raised land, R-A-Z-E-D. That's what happens in our solar fields. The very important question of spending nature to save nature, that conundrum. I think it really requires us to start reorienting how we view nature, which is how we started this conversation. Mm. So when I think about this situation with the desert, old growth desert being put up on the auction block for green energy sources like solar or wind or geothermal, it's a lot like our lungs, our own breathing system. The desert with its old growth is contributing to our clean air and it's like um, a pair of lungs. And if you raise, which is the word that was in my mind, if you raise all the the cilia from your system, the lungs are going to fail. Oh, yeah. And I feel like that's what we're doing to the surface of the desert. It's just going to keep working and everything's going to be fine. But no, if those little micro hairs that are there just holding everything together and filtering and holding the whole system together... Sure, let's try it and see how that works out for us. I think the Dust Bowl is a great example of how that went. I think there's not really a better example of how the rest of California regards the desert than that state 30 by 30 process. At its very root, it doesn't treat the desert as a thing. The desert is split up into regions with other parts of the state. And there's a bunch of reason, regions, and there's a bunch of regions that make sense, the Central Valley, the North Coast, all that kind of stuff. But the desert isn't treated as one thing. The north part of Death Valley National Park is lumped in with the Sierra Nevada. The southern part of Death Valley is in the Inland Deserts region, which also has Joshua Tree and some of Vance Borrego. But you also have a whole bunch of desert that's in the L.A. region because it's in the Antelope Valley in L.A. County. And same goes for Kern County with the western Mojave. And how do you compose a coherent strategy for managing this collected, related set of nested ecosystems, you know, how do you look at the whole desert as a unit if you're splitting it up that way? And I know there are some people working for the state agencies that are also frustrated with that. It says to me that we're not in the habit of thinking of the deserts as part of California. They're a tacked on thing. And so I think the Deserts of California, your book, is going to be a really crucial tool for those of us who are trying to spread that sort of awareness of the desert as a thing in California and elsewhere that deserves its own respect, has an intrinsic right to exist, and is not just an adjunct to our the resource colony operated by the California coastal cities. It's this thriving place. It's beautiful, and it deserves to have its own destiny preserved. It, it's almost like a, you have these indicator species in different ecosystems, like, like 
amphibians are often indicator species of the overall health of the ecosystem in question, right? It's almost as if the desert itself is an in indicator landscape, mm -hmm. if you will. You know, it's a litmus test somehow of our stewardship writ large and how the political entities and geographies overlay onto the ecologies of the natural world is, is something as old as Western settlement itself. One of the last maps in my book is John Wesley Powell's map of the West, when he rightly said that water and aridity will always define human ecology and human community and human settlement. And he proposed as the first director of the United States Geologic Survey that uh, that state should be arranged by major watersheds, which is which would which would, for example, if we did that with counties, somehow that would have solved the problem of Los Angeles County creeping over into Antelope Valley. Yeah. Right? And then you have this hydra of priorities that that is unruly at, at best, disastrous at worst. And how that's going to play out and how we need to rearrange the story we tell ourselves about these political connections. What's a county map? It's usually like something but from a Spanish land trust and, yeah. and like a creek and a mountain or something like that. It's usually that's it's that arbitrary. And then it's that old and it's that anachronistic too. But I do believe the solution must be democratic, whatever it is. Like we must hold on to that. When I have friends who are like, I don't even know what democracy is in the 21st century. We hear that all the time, especially mm -hmm. in the American context. And that's, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I'll tell you what democracy is. Democracy is having this conversation right now here, I, but it's also when I present my work to the Farmers Association in Fresno or whatever, and I'm, and I'm finding no resistance to it. Because mm -hmm. I'm not coming at them with some sort of political agenda. I'm not running for office. I'm not reinforcing the divisive rhetoric that we're spoon fed every day because I don't really care about that shit. What I want to do is like, how do we solve this? Like democratically. And I know it's very difficult and I'm simplifying things totally, but we got to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if we keep coming back to that place where, where we start, we might get somewhere again, talking ironically. What I'm hearing is me. that you're, you're really sweeping up some important goodie bits uh. and you're inspiring curiosity okay trying to motivate this is a way to look deeper this is a different way to look at the landscape and i love the, the whole field atlas description in that it's not super focused on education it's not super focused on culture and history but it's bringing it together enough so that you can be inspired to be curious yourself yeah and there you go i like that a lot now if i could just if i could just get a little deep on y'all. And uh -oh. I, I know that the, you, you guys aren't afraid to go here in your podcast, but I do have this paranoia that thinking about this this week, this paranoia of lost knowledge and even the format of the book as a endangered species of sorts, mm -hmm. as reading fades into scrolling as a as the thing that people do. And it is horrifying to me that the knowledge of even, there's almost like an emergent horizon of literacy itself as a phenomenon that, that comes about the new languages emerging of emoticons or whatever mm -hmm. emojis as we start to, to get less precise with our semiotics with the symbols that we're giving each other on a cultural level. How do we, so on that, if I can just address that paranoia and then transform it somehow, almost like a, 
like an agenda I have to not make an argument for something like environmentalism, right? Mm -hmm. But rather to tell a common human story of our relation to the more than human world that I think everybody digs. This is how it's done. This like is you're doing it. Yes, so right, thank right. you for carrying <laughs> well, the torch yeah, well. <laughs> um, to assure your paranoia. There are people out there who feel the same way. Mm -hmm. Chris and I, most definitely, oral tradition is how we've got this far. And there is molecular memory that maybe we know about, maybe we don't want to acknowledge, but we're carrying this knowledge with us and it is our duty to share it with one another. Bravo for taking on such a large job oh. and memorializing it in a book because that goes one step beyond oral tradition, which we have to maintain because obviously the Great Library at Alexandria is an example of you can write it down, but that can burn. Ooh. Oh, so true. So well said, Alicia. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure. I'm fascinated by complexity, as I was mentioning before. And the, and the thing that all complex systems share is this emergent phenomena. Emergent phenomena always take place regardless of the sort of dancing terrain of variables that we're talking about in any given system, right? So as I lament what may be a horizon of literacy, as I just coined it, it's, we also have technology allowing us to enter into casual conversations like this, which this long form podcast conversation, which is, is like counterintuitive to the prevailing zeitgeist, mm -hmm. to the prevailing idea that, oh, people's attentions are going away. When you can listen, you can, it, some of the most popular media outlets in the world are like hours long conversations about X, Y, or Z. And so that, so while I, it gets back to the old argument that you can really clearly see in my books. And I, I feel like even with your work here, it's like, it's like for every point of despair, there's a point of hope. Like we can play tennis if you want to about yeah. how things are going to shit or not. And both yes and no. Mm -hmm. This has reminded me of an experience I had quite recently. You know, I've been working to stop a water mining project in the middle of the desert. There's a spring called Bonanza Spring, which is an amazing place. You know, more than 10 gallons a minute, 24-7, 365 coming out of the ground, driest part of the desert. And it's a really culturally important place for local tribes, including the Mojave. And I was out there with a bunch of Mojave people. Uh, we were working with the Native American Land Conservancy, which a great group. We were just hanging out, talking about the spring, talking about the company that wants to destroy it. And because we had these really nice summer rains, there was a big carpet of cinchweed all over, which is a, a little mat-like daisy family plant with tiny yellow flowers that smells like cumin if you crush the leaves. There were some women a little bit younger than me, maybe in their 50s, late 40s, and they were unfamiliar with the plant. So I was telling them about it and saying, yeah, women used to crush it and rub it behind their ears around their neck as perfume deodorant kind of thing. And as I was saying that, it struck me that here's this knowledge that I happen to have in my hands for a minute that I was handing back to the people who are the rightful owners of it. I felt all kinds of different ways about that. I eventually ended up just thinking of myself as the spigot that the water flowed through. You don't credit the spigot for the water. But just the idea that knowledge is floating around and the people that really need to have that knowledge sometimes don't. And just the work of sharing what we know about the desert among people that care about it 
helps in this all hands on deck situation that we have at the moment. We all need to be working on this. And that's amazing, Chris, because I mean, the smell, smell as a function, a transporter, an agent of human memory. It's something like like 3% of our entire genome is dedicated to the lower half of our skull. It's between tasting and smelling things. This is an incredible evolutionary investment. 3% doesn't sound like much, but it's like the entire nervous system is like less than a half of 1%. It's like an incredible amount of energy we spend in that. And now here I am woefully writing books. I really try to inject this work. There's paintings on every page. It's got to just drip with color and soul. But still, the memory of the cinchweed crushed between the fingertips is so precious. I'm always, I'm always, I don't know, tripping over how a book can be more than a book. This atlas is, it's a very special person that reads these books like cover to cover. Because they're not designed to be like that. Because I couldn't imagine doing that. But you can't. But they're circular. They can start wherever. Because it's, mm-hmm. it's geography. It's topography. It's not narrative. And deconstructing that in my own voice, which is my own story. It's funny. My publisher, Heyday Books out of Berkeley, they do a lot of Native California literature. They also publish news from Native California. Fantastic magazine. It's a great magazine for sure. And, And it's interesting. Like when I first had this idea for the California Field Atlas, which was my first book before Forest Coasts and Deserts back in 2016. I had this idea and I'm going to decolonize all the names. I'm going to research all of the, the local names, the ancient names, the ancient words for these mountains and these rivers and these watersheds and all of that kind of thing. And my editor at the time, Lindsay Bear, who herself is a Eastern Shoshone woman, she's okay. Two things. One, don't do that. (laughs) She says to me, she says, you're going to get it wrong. This is very complex stuff that you're you're suggesting here. And, and that's a lifetime of work and we don't have that time. We got to publish this book. And two, that's not your story. Yeah. You don't get to tell that story. Mm. And that was so liberating. She's just tell your own story, man. You know, it's, oh yeah, okay. I'll own that then. Mm-hmm. Like this, it was this really brilliant sort of restraint on my own expression that freed me was a paradox there of creativity like great restraints make great art you need those restraints you need those parameters in order to make the thing the best thing that it can be and possible at all and so that was key to finding the trail to making these books but yeah what reality am i describing as i have now done this for almost a decade making book after book making book every 18 months or so i'm like I find that uh, there's four things I like to do in any day that if I could just whittle my life down to those four things, it's like reading, writing, painting, and walking. And they, and there's almost like this synesthesia, like they all become equivalent. So I'm walking through the forest. It's almost like chapters are unfolding. There's a narrative that's becoming evident. Or as my eyes are like traversing miles of printed ink, there's almost like a, there's a journey there as well. I even paint from left to like I'm writing. Hand, handwriting is very important to me too. There's lots of handwritten calligraphy in that. So, so what I'm trying to do in my effort to deconstruct the idea of the expert in my own mind, just being a, just trying to find the fullness of my own artistic expression and always trying to 
be more from here? Mm -hmm. How do I be more from a place? How do I express my love for it completely? Just give my life to it. Can I do that? And what does that look like? I don't, I, I it's not like I'm an answer. It's not like yeah, there's a destination. know if you find one. My point is there's not a destination, right? It is the walking itself is the arriving, mm -hmm. which is counterintuitive and rather paradoxical also, but, but it's what we got. The desert is kind of a moving target too. You know, ain't that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> what is the desert? Whoa. What is the Mojave? Is it something that's already passed? Recent episodes of this podcast, we've talked about the mourning and the loss of the York fire and, and the mm -hmm. dome fire and how those could not have existed as such were it not for the modern anthropogenic landscape that invasive grasses and atmospheric desiccation say have influenced on the local ecology right mm -hmm. and the mojave is already something else than it was 200 years ago yeah yeah brendan cummings makes that point we've had him on a couple of times and talking about joshua trees which he's been campaigning to protect he says the Joshua tree is adapted to reproduce in a Mojave desert that no longer exists. And that's certainly true of other things besides Joshua trees, black brush and any number of animals. The birds in the Mojave are declining, according to the Grinnell survey that was done a couple of years ago. It's really a landscape in transition. And that's, I expect, I, I know the Mojave best, but I expect it's also true of the Arizona upland, the saguaro forests, uh, sagebrush in the Great Basin, places like that. These are all moving targets and you have to place yourself if you want to know which desert you want to address, I think. That's right. I think it's very important to not, you know, condemn to death that has not yet died. So again, the future isn't written as such despite our best evaluations. I think there's something very powerful about the combination of data and love. I have keen memories of the 1980s when I was learning to backpack, say in Big Sur, when I felt like nature was something that I just missed. There were no elk, there were no whales, there was no, there, there was no beaver, there were no otters, there was no white-tailed American kites. There, and yet all of these species are now rebounding mm -hmm. in numbers across the California Floristic Province. And that's from this love and data, this, these conservation efforts by good policy, good science, effort, work, understanding in a way. So like more data, more scientists, more love, this very powerful combination between traditional ecological knowledge, which seems to be resurgent as well, and scientific innovation. The solutions in so many ways are still there. Now, I don't want to be like exhibiting toxic positivity here or whatever. No. I want to really acknowledge like trauma and like climate anxiety is real and I feel it every day. It's all I can do to not white knuckle it through that anxiety that that reels and wound but the disposition of of my own personality my own voice is set. this bottleneck that we're experiencing now these this incredibly complex vector of stressor type forces is by definition a bottleneck that opens up onto the other side and as we used to use the neologism that wendell berry calls industrial fundamentalism right so as we move through the age of progress with all of its lies of consumerism and predatory capitalism and economic disparity and all of these issues of these justice issues. We move through this battle to this new age of resilience, 
is, gosh, it's not only possible, it's probable. Now that's saying that with the extinction threat and all of these crises that are mounting like a heap of stones or something, we're not going to get crushed mm-hmm. or at least transformed, deformed into something else. But the one thing becomes the other thing. And we see that in the geography of the Mojave, which itself is a, is a very young thing. Really, the, the modern ecological configuration of this piece of desert land is only five, 6,000 years old, really. And right in line with really the maturation of the incredibly populous, successful, sophisticated native cultures and technologies about that time when inside of these modern climate regimes, the desert was able to configure itself in a way that was rather homeostatic for several millennia. Mm-hmm. And now it's changing again. And the horrifying thing, and I think the bewildering thing is that it's happening in human time. Yeah, It's happening in a, that's almost mirrored in our own bodies as they age and transform into the next thing. A scale we can perceive. <laughs> right. yeah. That's something that's comforting about nature is that it's on a scale that we generally can't perceived, but we're witnessing something that is happening in real time. That's right. But bringing the data, the science, and the love, Mm. it's a triple threat combination that I advocate (laughs) for because it's important to know your shit and also know you don't know shit. Mm. And it's important to continue to pay attention to those who are going all the way down the rabbit hole for us in the name of knowledge and understanding. And then bringing that love, which... I find it so hard to articulate without sounding new agey or hippie or whatever, but that genuine lo- love for love for source, not just the earth, but the universe that we're swirling around in. It's this whole cosmic soup that we have to have reverence for and bringing love through stewardship and respect and curiosity. Um, it's very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Difficult yeah. conversations to be had, but very rewarding. It, it's a tough word, this thing called love. I'm fascinated. As far as like movements go, one of the most, one of the big ones for me is the civil rights movement, the 60s or what. You have, you have modern thinkers like Cornell West, who offers such wisdom, where he says, never be paralyzed by despair and never be surprised by evil, which is uh, a wonderful call to action and love. I'm not surprised by evil. I'm not surprised by the exploitation of the desert. It's not shocking to me. Right. And although I may despair, I won't let it freeze my bones. I won't let it because of the fire of love. And then we move towards acceptance acceptance because when we see these cycles happening in nature, for me, I find so much relief, like The desert mistletoe is a great example. It'll live in symbiosis with its host tree and not overtake it. But if that host tree has reached the end of its lifespan or it gets damaged in a storm or the parasite knows that its host is dying, so it will go full and it'll just take over the entire tree. And I find great comfort when I look at situations that humans find themselves in now where we're taking over a dying planet. It's almost the same thing. And it's very much so our fault if we want to look at it that way, but it's also very much just the way things work. And I don't know if people are remembering, but we're a big part of the animal kingdom. It's in our nature. These patterns exist. And while they may be horrifying, terrifying, and difficult to process, 
their natural mm-hmm. and acceptance of that is where I find some peace. That's beautiful. Symbols of hope on the land for me most recently include the return of the California condor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in numbers that, again, I mean, talk about love and data. Yeah. <laughs> Which should be the name of an album or something. Okay, just this week, three more condors were released in Redwood National Forest yeah. by the Eurocs. Pregonish is, is, is the name for condors. And in my neck of the woods in the East Bay of Mount Diablo, we have now two dozen condors have returned to the northern Diablo Ranges, their ancestral territory. I did not know that. Yeah. It's my old stomping grounds. That's fantastic. They're here for the first time in 100 years. 150 years. Now... There is a story, I have a podcast called Place and Purpose with the chairman of the Federated Indians of the Great Rancheria in Santa Rosa, and his name is Greg Saris, and he wrote a story called The Last Woman from Petaluma. Petaluma is a Sonoma County city, and that's a native word, it's not a Spanish word, Petaluma. And the last woman from Petaluma, who is Greg's great-great-great-grandmother, her name was Supu. And Supu in 1830 was upon the last sighting of a California condor in the Bay Area said, how will we dance without feathers? Referring to the regalia of that were often decorated, of the Southern Pomo, decorated with condor feathers. And now that condors are rebounding, it occurs to me that there's no actual word for a flock of condors. You can have a parliament of owls. You can have what a flamboyance of flamingos or something like mm-hmm. that. You can have a murder of crows. An ostentation of peacocks. And ost- one of oh, them. that's a good one. I didn't know that one. Yeah. That's fantastic. So I I recommend, and this was just published on the cover of the Berkeley Times last week, my my suggestion, my humble offering is that in honor of Supu, we call it a dance of condors. Mm. I love it. That's beautiful. That is going into the 90 miles from Needle's style book right now. (laughs) Very good. Desert Dictionary updated. (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah, we actually reprinted that story of Greg's at KCET a few years back. Oh, very good. Yeah, having a really good time with the ongoing conversation, right? Just keeping the conversation going, talking with Greg about what it is to be from anywhere. How do we balance the rights and responsibilities of being in a human community, in a more than human community, how do we talk about these characters who interact with our, our lives on so many like gross and subtle levels, big and small, micro and macro, uh, to to get through this bottleneck together to make sense of something, to use common language symbols. What's funny? It, it, it's all very specific historically. Semiotics, as I say, operate within a very specific lexicon of meaning and definition that are very sophisticated. Like a lot of these, a lot of these maps, for example, map is such a modern phenomenon. It doesn't, the representation is not the thing. You need, you are doing a lot of work mm-hmm. figuring out my maps. <laughs> you know, I'm asking you to do a lot of work. And I think there's an appeal there because it becomes a puzzle. There's a comprehension, there's a delay time that you need to take it in, you need to apprehend it. And if I'm successful at it, it'll only take you a second because we operate within the same cultural sphere. And doing that, finding that is 
is the core of what I'm talking about when I say finding a better story, not making a better argument. Mm -hmm. It's not me against you. It's we operate in similar ways towards perhaps a similar goal within a similar ethic. So that is, that's the promise of the art side of my work. It sounds like a very primal stewardship role. Mm -hmm. That's it, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's it. right. The human hand, data, love. I think we've yeah. cracked some new ground here today. Yeah. Any prospect of a Nevada Field Atlas series? No. <laughs> I've, so. I've been asked that. I've been asked that. Like, when are you going to do the Field Atlas of Oregon or Texas or whatever? Yeah. No, I'm from here. Yeah. And there's something... I, I was even reticent to do the deserts because there is something of an original wound that is that line from Lake Tahoe to the Colorado River that is the eastern border of California that, that, that bisects the Mojave Desert. It is a contrivance that I perpetuate in this book, and that's difficult for me. Although, although I do have a lot of, lot of borderless maps mm -hmm. in the book. Uh, but the ecological island that is the California floristic province, everything on the western side of the state, right? So everything on the west side of the Sierra Crest, the transverse and peninsular Sinothus ranges. Land. Sinothus land. Very good. Um, that is core to my heart. So doing this deserts book has, has often felt to me like, huh, I'm doing a book on another planet. Like it's, it's another planet out here. But interestingly, especially with the York and the, and the dome fires, the York fire being the largest fire in California this year, the book that I'm writing now will pairs up with a book that I wrote a couple of years ago called The State of Water, Understanding mm -hmm. California's Pre Most Precious Resource. The book I'm writing right now is called The State of Fire, Understanding Where, How, and Why California Burns. And that is a puzzle. And I've so much wrapped up in this story. Wow, what a contentious issue, mm -hmm. both popularly, scientifically, and internally. Working through getting the relationship right with fire. Ooh, on, <laughs> on, on a cultural level, on a personal level, like I think doing that, whatever that means, is key and essential for solving this bottleneck locally, geographically, as far as the biodiversity crisis is concerned, right? So that that's a whole other podcast. So in these days of collapse and mm. fire, what do you do to keep your chin up and mm. get by and enjoy being alive while fighting the good fight? This is, for me, this is the secret alchemy of beauty. Okay, so this is probably the mystic secret of why I'm not a scientist. I'm not a field researcher. I'm a field researcher, but I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to, I'm not, science operates with a very specific methodology. I'm a generalist. I'm scavenger. So I will, I operate looking for it almost as a nutrient force that my body needs, that the, some core aspect of my identity requires that I seek out like water in the desert somehow. The idea of the beautiful form, the witnessing, and that can be witnessing terrible, horrible things. That's certainly the case these days. But in just the phenomenological universe, that the, the eye of the universe perceiving the thing of the universe, and I, in the two made one in that rather a atonement-like thing. That is 
Okay, that, that's a lofty answer. The down-to-earth answer, because I get asked this question, and I often get asked this question in the sense of, what can I do? Often from kids who are almost feeling like this paralytic anxiety. Feels like I don't even have a future. The world doesn't end. Nature doesn't work like that. <laughs> okay? <laughs> like, you know, it transforms. It's about recycling of energy. What yeah. I need you to do, it's like, let me ask you this question then. When was the last time you went camping? Real camp. Go to the river, take your shoes off, get, go ankle deep and feel that water and breathe deep. Because whatever happens, we're going to need you grounded. We're going to need you unpanicked. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to need you thinking clearly. We're going to need you connected to this place that is injured, but just like the human body exists in this realm of healing as well and tapping into that power really is an the agent of hope that that special vitamin that that particular alchemy that just might tip the scales from something like as you described catastrophic failure towards something that might be like catastrophic success what if we could imagine what if we could imagine like California's natural world at the end of the 21st century being in better shape than it was at the end of the 20th century. As wounded as it was just 20 years ago, there are, as I was saying, like the end of nature, it's like the end of nature is now canceled. It's, we're inviting in connective ecologies. We're inviting in understanding of corridor-based fire ecology, say, or something like that. We're inviting in all of these ancient technologies, sophisticated ancient technologies of how to be from here. We're going to restore this justice. We're going to look towards solutions because it's the only choice we have. Mm -hmm. That is my favorite answer by far. Oh, I thank you both so much for having me here today. It feels so good to be sitting in this corner of Wonder Valley and talking to you about... Uh, about, gosh, the, the aspect of the universe that I'm most in love with. This more than human world of California. It's being part of that, that, that community is, I wasn't raised with any religion. I don't really know what spirituality is, but I do feel this. Mm -hmm. And, and if there is like a, there is, when I think of the infinite relationships of biodiversity across the landscape, it sparks something in me that I would not necessarily hesitate to call spiritual. Yep. Yeah. I have no idea what that means. And I'm going to be okay with that irrationality. I have to be because that's part of the complexity and the beauty and the love and the data. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us oh, for these intergalactic explorations. <laughs> intergalactic. I love it. Yes, indeed. Obi Kaufman. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you both, Alicia, Chris. You do such great work. I'm so proud to be a part of your community now. Back at you, man. Right on. Well, that's it for this episode. Again, thank you for listening to 90 Miles from Needles, the Desert Protection Podcast. There's a bunch of thanks that we have to give out at the end of this episode, uh, starting with Mr. Obi Kaufman, who was incredibly generous with his time. We also want to thank some people that have donated to the podcast for the first time since our last episode. We have Nancy Klein, Shannon Perry, Kyle Pio, 
and Elizabeth Thorison, old friend. Very generous donations from all of them through our Give Butter page, and then, of course, on Patreon, Andrew McCuller and Colin. We have so much gratitude for those of you who make this possible. Little heads up, as many of you regular listeners know, and those who follow us both on social media know, I am going to be leaving my paid job at the National Parks Conservation Association, which has been a great gig, leaving in mid-January, and then at the very end of January and the first couple of weeks of February, I am going on the road. So in approximately this order, I'll be in the Las Vegas and Searchlight, Nevada area, and then down around Ajo, Arizona and Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument, going from there to the Tohono Autumn Reservation and Tucson, spending a few days in Tucson, and then moving from there to, in this order, Carlsbad Caverns National Park, Alpine and Marfa, Big Bend National Park, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, the Four Corners area, including the Hopi and Navajo reservations, Page and Zion, and possibly, depending on road clearance and that kind of thing, the North Rim of the Grand Canyon, St. George, of course, and then back into Las Vegas and potentially Searchlight. So if you have ideas for places that might be interested in hearing me blather on about the desert, or if, if you're working on an issue and you're part of the desert that you would love to have uh, featured on the podcast, let us know. Because this is a decompression from working like a maniac for a couple of decades. So I'm decompressing from that and doing what I can to build the podcast family here. So please get in touch if you have ideas. And we really appreciate your support and your listening. See you next time. from Needles is a production of the Desert Advocacy Media Network.